0: Hey everybody, this is Aerie in the Air. Welcome back to my podcast. If you're new here, I'm Aerie, and I am a professional action sports athlete. And especially lately in these strange times, I have been seeing a huge need for more nuanced conversation, for better sense-making, and for deeper meaning in our lives collectively. So I'm doing everything in my power to ask bigger questions, think clearer thoughts, and help people curate the sense of meaning and purpose that I have been so lucky enough to experience through my sports and my relationships. If that's a mission that resonates with you and you want to support it, please consider donating to the show at paypal.me slash airy in the air. I really appreciate it. Today I have a super exciting episode for you. Today on the podcast, we have Nick Hawks. Nick is a paraglide pilot, a surfer, a sailor. He is a writer. He lives in Southern California, and he has some really, really interesting thoughts about earth energy, these ways that we really connect to nature through riding a wave in the ocean or sailing or riding in a thermal with a paraglider. These are things that both Nick and I share in our experience. And we also get into topics like the connection to nature and how it makes us feel and how it helps us understand our place in humanity and in the universe. We also, at the end of this conversation, we kind of get into coronavirus, the psychology around it and what's going on. So I hope this is helpful for you. Like always, enjoy some music. And without further ado, here's my talk with Mr. Nick Hawks. Nick well thanks so much for being on the podcast today i um, super stoked to talk to you I heard you first on Gavin McClurg's cloud-based mayhem podcast talking specifically about paragliding and some of your crashes and some of your insights into risk and the environment and those kind of things and this is a pretty interesting format to do a podcast since we have never met or spoken before and now we are 60 seconds into our first conversation which i think is actually a pretty cool way to do a podcast like this so i have listened to a number of your podcasts and uh on your own show the nick hawks show which is super rad i recommend people checking that out and i thought that maybe we would start by you just kind of telling me like what you do what you do for a living um I'd love to get into one of the articles that you wrote uh, about earth energy, but first I'd love to just kind of know a little bit about you and uh, what you do and how you got into paragliding. And then we can go from there.
1: Dig it. So I, uh, I sell cookies on the internet for a living. Um, my wife and I own a, a little company called paleo treats where we live in San Diego. The shop is about half a mile from the house and uh, most days we're kind of in and out of the shop and, shipping paleo treats all over the world or selling them to people who walk in the, in the front door. So that's uh, generally how I make my money. Every so often I'll do some contract stuff for Red Bull. I work with their high performance program um, a couple times a year and, and put together training camps for their athletes or I'm a part of the training camps they put together for their athletes. So we did a surf camp last November and a mountain bike camp in December. And we've got a couple lined up for this year, 2020. So do that stuff on the on the side. And then I came to paragliding from running. I don't like to say I was an ultra runner because basically I trained for one race and I failed it twice and then finally finished it and uh, had enough of of long distance running. But I really liked the time in the mountains. And when I'd finished up that race, I was looking for something else to do. I knew I didn't want to run or train for super long distances anymore. Um, And I saw Rocky Mountains Traverse, which was Gavin and Will's uh, video about the the pretty radical paragliding trip. They did 700 uh, K down to the U S border from deep in Canada. And I thought that's the way that I want to interact with the mountains. And so I started talking about paragliding with everybody I could meet and ended up meeting a, a really cool lady who offered to teach me. And that's uh, that's when it kicked off. So that must've been 2016, late 2016. When that
0: happened. Awesome. That's rad. Yeah. I think that at that rate i think that i'm probably like just 12 months ahead of you in uh paragliding but it sounds like we've both done a pretty deep dive and we're both influenced by gavin and his podcasts and his films and uh i think that most paraglide pilots at this point have uh heard of him and have followed his adventures so that's super interesting that the uh Paleo treats—I've definitely tried those. Those are awesome. <laughs> oh, cool! So, tell me what when you say you're running these camps for Red Bull, the high performance camps. What exactly does that look like?
1: So, I'm going to start at the at the very beginning. When most people hear Red Bull, they think of the drink, um, and this Red Bull High Performance is is supported. That's how they get their money. Um, but it's a basically like a, almost a different company. So, there's Red Bull mm-hmm. Media, and that's. That's what they do is they they push all that stuff out. So the first kind of baseline is that there's a, a, divorcing between the the drink and these camps. They're they're two different things. Um, so Red Bull's got a stable of athletes. I forget how many, maybe two or three hundred. They take the, um, or they they pick from the top three athletes in any given sport usually, and then they support those athletes in you know whatever way they they kind of work out contractually. And as part of that support, they have one high performance center in Santa Monica, California, and then they've got one over in Austria. And so I work with the Red Bull North America folks and that's the one out of Santa Monica. And so a couple times a year we'll just, it came from a talk I gave at Red Bull a couple of years ago. Um, they had a, um, a, a big meeting where they brought in a bunch of psychologists from various government agencies and entities and you know, the space program and the military intelligence community. And they were they were looking for kind of advice on or or kind of the current state of affairs of what do you do for building toughness? Um, and I think the the conference was called, uh, what was it? Thriving in Adversity. And so the talk that I gave was basically like, hey, you, you can't really, there's no magic to it. You just got to put in the work. If you want to get stronger, you got to do more squats. If you want to get faster, you do more sprints. Like there's not... Despite you know lots and lots of uh, snake oil being peddled, that's that's what it is at the end of the day. And and they like that message. And I talked about some of the kind of fun stuff I was doing for my friends. We used to call it "Trust Me, It's Fun." So we'd go out to a playground, and I'd bring out like a 12-foot metal beam and a couple of tennis balls and some buckets, and we'd set up these little obstacle courses or do some knife fighting with sponge knives and and just kind of play around and have fun outside of the gym, but still working out and then doing all these odd movements and you know just not Really training for anything specifically, just having fun with the with each other as adults, um, which is something that I saw wasn't wasn't happening as much as I wanted. And so when Red Bull heard about that, they said, "Hey, can you bring that same thing to our athletes?" Um, and the background behind that is that their athletes are they're already the best. Many of them don't get there through the gym. So skateboarders typically don't spend time in the gym. And you know, once they get to that point where they're being sponsored it's really hard to tell them what to do. Like they're you know, kind of their viewpoint is, Hey, I already got here. Like I, I know what I'm doing. You can support me, but I, I don't need a ton of, you know, I definitely don't want to be pushed into doing squats or whatever it is. So one of the challenges at, at Red Bull or, or at any kind of elite organization that deals with these adventure athletes is getting folks to, to branch out outside of their specific area of expertise in order to bolster up their, their total experience. And, um, Payson McElveen just did a really cool podcast with Tyler Jewell, who's the head SNC guy over at Red Bull that, that goes into some of the methodology behind this. But yeah, what they wanted was me to bring in some kind of fun workouts that were a little bit off offbeat, And uh, that's how it started. And that's sort of answers your question.
0: Well, that's rad. Yeah. And I totally understand how a professional athlete would kind of have the mentality of you can't argue with results. And I'm sponsored by Red Bull. That's why I'm here in the first place and then kind of shaking the table on how they have come to where they are with a more fun and diverse workout could be of myriad different benefits. I think that's super interesting.
1: Yeah, and I should say like the athletes aren't in general super resistant to it. They're just like, hey, Uh, if I'm in the gym, that takes time away from me getting better at my craft. Totally the ask was, how do we make it so that they're psyched to, to spend time in the gym and to figure out kind of what's what's going to happen and how we can benefit them?
0: Yeah, I think that's something that I, as a professional athlete, could really benefit from. I tend to, I have said for a long time that I'm allergic to working out and that I love exercise, but I do not work out. And I basically love to do the sports that I do. And I have four of them that i'm that i perform at a professional or near professional level and i love you know on any given day there's something for me to do that is outside that pushes me but i don't typically work out and i see that i i see that that is a mentality or a belief that i have that is kind of dissolving as i just age like i'm only 31 but i just like you know i grew up as a young skier who went off huge jumps and did big tricks and crashed and like just the ability for my body to recover from crashing is like at a pretty steep decline and so i definitely can understand um how beneficial that would be yeah but let's get into I really love the podcast that you recorded that is titled The Currents of the Earth, and it's something that resonated with me deeply, and I have had similar conversations. Um, But why don't we start with just a little overview of what the currents of the Earth is about and Earth energy in general?
1: Sure. So, Earth energy... This is like...
0: Yeah, I think the this is like at the crux of where you and I relate. Like this is, I think, of all the different things that we do, this is kind of how my podcast and your podcast, like how the two of us relate. I think this is uh perfectly quintessential for that.
1: Yeah, cool. So currents of the earth is uh or earth energy, they're they're basically the same general idea. Came to me as I got into paragliding and, and started to try to relate it to other things that I'd done. And it was just this idea that, you know, a while ago, I think, oh, I forget the the name of the book now. Um, There's a guy who wrote a book and he talked about surfing every day for a year. And he talked about surfing being this, one of the only sports where you could ride actual energy. Um, in that you're riding a wave and so it was one of those was very few sports so I was always looking for other sports where you rode energy and I sailed a little bit as a as a younger dude in my early 20s did a bunch of sailing and that was this other sort of thing like okay, I'm on the waves and I'm also on the wind and, and riding that energy and then as you get into paragliding it becomes you know inescapable that 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 is what we ride is is energy coming off of the earth whether we talk about it as solar energy or wind energy And so I started having these thoughts around this you know really, it's this gift that those of us who discover it get to experience of interacting with earth energy in that way and it you know it sounds kind of hippie that it's we're talking about energy but i feel like you know anyone who has been in the grips of earth energy especially those currents that are far stronger than than we can kind of manage at all um, won't deny that and that that first came to me sailing you know you get out in a big ocean storm in a little boat and i had this realization that Up until that point, I thought that kind of no matter what I did or where I went, if everybody in the world, all six billion or seven billion, whatever it is now, people wanted to help me, like they could figure out a way to, to help me get out of whatever I was doing. But man, you get in the grip of those big ocean storms and you realize it doesn't matter. Like there's no ship big enough, there's no plane or helicopter tough enough or strong enough to withstand, you know, even pretty gnarly, you know, like pretty light conditions compared to what nature can dole out. And it was this really cool realization that we get to go out and participate in these things. And we talk a lot about risk management, but there's there's aspects of these sports that are just flat out outside our control. Um, you know, whether you're talking to big wave surfers and you fall off the wave at the wrong time, like it's on you to 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 survive that thing. There's nothing that anyone else can do. And we're getting better at that with the, the life jackets that you can pull um, and, and that kind of survivability is going up. But paragliding, man, you get in the, the wrong parcel of air um, and there's, it's just really tough to manage your way out and there's nothing that anyone can do to help you. And so it was just that idea of, of interacting with, um, with these currents of the earth and with earth energy that was it had this kind of fundamentally reassuring and, and soothing and heartening um, aspect to it of, for the human soul.
0: I love that. I love that you also parse it as positive, that it's heartening because there is a big element to that. That's fucking terrifying that you launch your paraglider and you find yourself in the wrong parcel of the air. There's nothing that 7 billion people on earth could do to help you. Yeah. And I think true. that for me, I can almost remember the moment that I had this realization that you're talking about. I, I, used to ski 150 days a year and I used to say that summer sucked and I remember one day as we went out to this backcountry skiing spot and I started skiing down a hill that I had skied down so many times before and the snow was deeper, lighter more, per, it was just the most perfect setup I had ever experienced, and I could hardly see. That was the thing that was like my that changed my visceral experience was that I couldn't see where I was going because the snow was so deep and so perfectly light that I could actually ski through it. Hmm. And I realized in that moment that just how complex of a system that I had been chasing for essentially my entire life, that I had been skiing for you know 15 years at the time and I had just then for the first time experienced what I thought I had been chasing and how delicate and how perfectly aligned all of these different factors had to be for the snowpack to be right side up and the right temperature the right depth and then to stack on my own experience that I had to be in the right place at the right time with the right skills, the right equipment surrounded by the right people for me to have this experience. And that is, uh, you know, slightly outside of the earth energy, like the writing the wave of the energy of a wave or a thermal, but the, what struck me about your article is just this, really deep connection to earth and the cycles that are there. And yeah. I think that for me in my life, this experience of riding earth energy, this experience of being both like playing with it and also being afraid and humbled by it have had really big, like, I would say like existential implications in my life, like it's um okay you know like it's a bit it's a it's a teaching moment like it it affects the way you see the rest of your life and your place in humanity. Is that something that you have seen in your life as you have experienced this earth energy? How has experiencing earth energy affected your day to day or affected the way that you see your place in humanity or on earth or you know how has that how has that changed your worldview
1: I think I mean there's there's more more aspects to it than earth energy so that i guess the older i get the the smaller i see myself on the planet you know when you're mm-hmm. when i was 18 i was i was pretty sure that i was the most important thing in the universe <laughs> and, uh, and that has only <laughs> slowly degraded to you know to be to being where i am now at 42 uh, I, I think that earth energy is this really cool part about it and i I did make this differentiation as I was writing the article. Cause I, at first I was like, Oh, I, you know, I should include all of the people who interact with nature. So that's mountain bikers and runners, but there's a different aspect of most gravity sports in that you can, you know, sports that are that are dictated by gravity and that you can stop when you want to. I mean, even if you're skiing sure for the, like the, Big mountain badass Johnny Collinson skiers, like there's a point where yeah you're not stopping you've got to, you gotta roll with it but most of the time you can stop, take a breather if you're riding a bike downhill, you can stop, take a breather if you're running you know and and you have much much more control, and so being exposed to those those earth currents is like oh man this this is way out of my control, and there's basically mm-hmm. nothing that special about me compared to the other ton of people, massive humanity on the planet. And, you know, really it kind of focused me inward to think, okay, like if if I don't matter, then, you know, to the grand scheme of things, like I matter to something, I matter to this mind that is inhabiting this body, I'm gonna max out the experiences and the richness of the experience that I I have, because no one else cares anyway. Like I I could be sitting on the couch watching TV, I could be flying a paraglider, you know, like no one cares, so it's up to me to to bring out the most that I can out of this experience, and that it won't matter to anyone else. I mean, even if you're, you know, Gavin McClurg at the kind of top of the game or Will gadd like they're not getting these these huge external benefits. Um, the benefits to them or and to anyone really at the peak of their sport is the peak of the interaction with with Earth Energy. Like we're not really doing it for external gain. You can only do it for this internal gain and this constant perspective of like man i am just this really small thing in a really big world and it's on me to to experience and internalize and use this you know um whole thing however however i want to
0: Hmm. i think that's pretty profound because i think that most of us are and just from a species perspective we are looking for meaning and it sounds like the the difference in sport from mountain biking to paragliding has a potential for more meaning do you agree with that i i don't know i mean
1: i, I think we all find meaning in different ways so mm-hmm. for, and it's it's you know, probably in part set up on how our, our brain chemistry, our body chemistry, our gut chemistry, how all that works, how we develop the nature and the nurture, you know, different people get to these places in different ways. You talk about um, meditators or Buddhists or religious folks, you know, they don't get to this same spot through paragliding or mountain biking. And so I, I think we got to be really careful about how we say, you know, you can get to this spot. Like there's not a limit in in the methods um, specific to an activity, the limit is probably the intensity with which we pursue it. And then also the the introspection and the self-awareness that we have as we pursue it. So, you know, if you're going deep in meditation, you may have a very similar experience to being in the, in the throes of paragliding. And that's, you know, one thing that most of us pilots know, like you step off the mountain and into meditation and maybe we don't all say it that way, but uh, man, for me, it's, it, it, it has been that thing, you know, I step off the mountain and pretty much all the time, the only thing I'm thinking about is flying. And if I, you know, rarely as I've gotten a little bit better, um, I start to think like, okay, maybe I could relax for a minute and just kind of take all of this in and, and disconnect from the actual flying and the connection to the wing. But man, I always jolt back to that reality really quickly. Like, Nope, I'm not good enough. I don't have the muscle memory yet to do that. I'm going to stay super connected and just really in the moment, but I don't think that is, uh, unique to paragliding
0: yeah i agree i agree and i've experienced that in uh other sports as well and i think that you know there's a delineation that you made there between mountain biking or skiing and paragliding where in the throes of a big thermal there's really no there's no I mean, a paraglitter doesn't have a down button and there's really no like stop. There's no breaks in a way for you to like manage a moment of overwhelm that you can come to a complete stop and take a breather. Yeah, and, yeah, and there are ways in which I see that parallel in mountain biking just with momentum, right? Inertia is just like, you know, you're hauling ass and the chance of Crashing and smacking into something is something that in a similar way that no one can save you from the parcel of air that can completely and totally take control of your paraglider and your flight path. There are also moments on a mountain bike or in skis where there's no one that can stop you from the inertia that you have put forward into the the system, right? The system's moving. And I think that for me there is uh, you know, I, I think that in a similar way that you parsed that experience with positivity, that it was both humbling and and helped you understand your place in humanity. I think that it that I have also created deep meaning in my life from the fragility of my life and the risk in which I accept on these different sports and which kind of segues us into something that you talked at length with Gavin on the podcast that's kind of how I discovered you about risk and so I'd love to hear your thoughts about the balance between this meaning that we're making these experiences that you've described as not externally beneficial to the just risk that we're taking, you know, just to, you know, the risk of not going home at night.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder about the, this idea of balance. I I don't know that, well, that we can totally have it is that there's mm-hmm. you know if i look at it there's there's no way to say that once you step off the hill and and into flight like how balanced is your risk like, I, I mean you can look at the conditions you can fly on a nice summer evening glass off and it's you know relatively low risk at, at a decent skill level but still like the the consequences of making the one mistake at the wrong time are just so different than going for a walk around the neighborhood um you know I, I don't i don't know that we can balance that stuff out and i you know i've been asked this by friends of mine like how do you how do you justify taking that risk on the paraglider you've got you know a wife you got a business you got your three little doggies you know plenty of people who love you why do you keep doing this thing that is that is so obviously ultra high risk and um i think you know for all of us the answer is is different for me it's it's this constant you know f- fear of not measuring up and so every time i go out and fly or do something that is sketchy it's like okay like today today i measured up like i still got what it takes to go out there and and throw down a little bit and even on you know some days like hey i just didn't have what it took today i mean that that's you know it's just this constant checking in with the reality of for me where i am and and what i'm willing to do and what i'm willing to to put up or not put up and it's it's funny you know how, how that goes, and how kind of little that seems. But um, that's one of the big reasons it drives me. Is it's this this absolute um, measurement for me of like, do I have what it takes to to go up and manage fear? And I now know, you know, most of the time because I'm flying once, twice a week, which is not as much as I'd like, but still, it's 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 a, enough that on any given week, like, yep, I, I'm I know where I am. It may not be where I want to be, but I, I know where I am. And without mm-hmm. that exposure to to the big risk, I mean, it's a lot harder, at least for me, to figure out where I am and to kind of know it in my heart that I, I know what's going on. And I've got an accurate assessment of my reality.
0: Yeah. And I think that you just touched on what was coming up for me there as you spoke about that, which is a accurate is is my internal experience or the thoughts that I'm thinking in accord with some objective outside reality. And... think that's a pretty profound thing to have in your life that it's like um the the yardstick is kind of your own life and skill and risk which i think for a lot of people is hard to grasp or hard to fully appreciate i think that there's you know like in my sports i'm Referred to as crazy or insane or these kind of things, and there's um, a level of truth I think that is that I'm seeking after. That this it's almost like a science in a way of measuring my internal assumption of how I stack up, like you say, to the actual reality of the air mass and the task at hand. And I have, in the last six months, this has come up really super powerfully for me. I, in August, was a first responder to a really gruesome fatality at Pine Mountain. Um, And then less than four weeks later, my best friend, Paraglide Buddy, who I've traveled around the world with flying, he crashed into the top of a mountain at sunset, and which became a four and a half hour me carrying him on my back down the mountain. And so that both of those experiences have parsed my winter into being what has been the probably the darkest winter of my life. And just a deep inquiry as to the risks that I'm taking versus the reward that I'm getting from it. And I have made a living out of this thing for a long time. And so that is one part that I have really been looking at. And the, you know, the wife and the dogs is something I relate to. I have made deep meaning in my partnerships um, romantically and deep meaning in my friendships. And so those are things that I value a lot and don't want to lose. But I also just derive so much meaning from my experience in the air, measuring my own stacking upness against the conditions at hand, the reality. And I read a great quote yesterday that that said, deal with reality before reality deals with you. And I thought that that was pretty... Ah, uh, poignant for paragliding, too, because there is, like you say, nothing, not any of the seven billion people can do for you in those um, in those instances. But I'd love to hear from you what are the like what are these peak experiences like? like what are the things that keep drawing you back to this? Um, I know that for each of us as we as I talk to other pilots, we all have a different it's like different moments that really pique our interest and our memories of what this whole thing that we're doing is and whether that's in surfing, sailing or paragliding, I would love to hear what it is about this. That is like drawing you back and bringing you back into the ring to measure your own enoughness against the reality of the nature that you're in. Oh man,
1: I, th- I think that's the nice thing about paragliding is they're just for me, there's there's so many of those pieces and it probably deals with just um first a, a togetherness. So you know, some of those peak experiences just come from being on the hill and feeling like I understand what's going on in the air, mm-hmm. at least around launch. And so if you, if you speak another language um, and you didn't learn it as a child, like you learned it as an adult, you had, at some point you had this experience where for me it was, it was Spanish, is you go to this other country and you don't know what anyone is, is saying. And it's just, it's really frustrating. And it's that kind of lonely feeling and it's anti to almost everything that humans have. And then things start to click and you realize like, oh, they just said whatever it was, meat and package and cost. And like, oh, she's talking about the price of steak or you're getting directions and you understand what's going on or, or, you know, you get stopped by a cop and you can talk to them and, you know, explain why you're doing something stupid. You just don't understand the local rules. And you had this kind of experience where all of a sudden you understand what's going on and you can interact and and speak about that world. And, you know, going from the, the point of the very first flight I had, um, you know where you i remember get, you know running off and launching off it just wasn't that exciting like i just didn't know what was going on and i you know now can look back and see when the instructor's like hey you're in ridge Lift. and for me it's like oh it's just really bumpy i i think i want to get out of here but i'm going to stick it out and then you know aiming out towards sea and then landing at the beach um this is up in oregon to go from there to now at, at blossom which is my local hill you know i'm I'm not an expert, but I've got a pretty good idea of what's going on there and being able to to read the conditions there in a way that is like, hey I know with or without people around me when it's okay to launch like I can I speak the language at that site um, and that's probably worth taking a little bit of a diversion and saying that for me, I fly blossom a lot. I don't fly anywhere else very much, and I know when I go to different sites, I realize that my um, capability with the language of paragliding is, is kind of stunted in that way is that at Blossom I've got it more or less nailed everywhere else. Like I'm still a, a beginner. I um, that's a, it's kind of a known weak point for me. So mm-hmm. I guess the first part is, is just understanding the sky a little bit better. And that's just such a rad feeling. You, you look at the Hawks or the Ravens and the wind or the wind on the lake or what's going on or the clouds and watch them forming and going apart and, and know what it means. I mean, that's speaking another language. That's, that's a radical thing. Um, and and then another peak experience is probably what you would think more of when you're you're looking for that. As I remember coming, we've got this little valley crossing down here in San Diego. So you cross from Blossom over to we call it the Cap El Capitan, and then you come back. And I think the I don't know the third time I came back, you know, you're you're up at. 3000 on the far side and you just aim across the valley and come back. And I didn't know what I was doing. So I'm in kind of the wrong part and fighting the headwinds when I should have been skirting along the sides and avoiding them. And I came back really low at, at the pretty close to the base of the hill, about as low as you can get and still make a decent save. And it was ridge lift. And it was smooth. It was late in the day. So I had a lot of these things in my favor, but it was still like it took everything I had to to claw back up that ridge. It was just like trying to make perfect turns and staying in close, you know, knowing that there, weren't a, a ton of, there wasn't a ton of thermal activity out there. It was just, you know, that moment I could feel, I felt like I could feel the, um, you know, the uh, neurotransmitters like bursting out of the synapses in my brain and the dopamine just like firing. I, I could feel like everything that was going on, the whole world was sparkling. And as I get higher and higher, you cross that point where you're like, Dude, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fucking make it. I'm going to make it. You know, you get back up. And then you're, you, know, I'm above launch. I can come back down. It's like holy shit! I just did this thing that I could have <laughs> done two weeks ago. Like I'm so fucking fired up. And I remember that now. And that's just one of those pieces that always brings me back to flying. Is is searching for that experience again, um, despite having since come in pretty low and kind of clawed back up. And it's it's not as as stimulating <laughs> the second or third time. And and then you hopefully make less mistakes and don't put yourself in that position. But you know those those experiences. And, and that's. That's flow that's um yeah. that's what everybody's looking for is that when the the level required of you and the level you're able to give are are really closely matched those are ecstatic experiences that's that's a reason to keep coming back
0: absolutely man fuck yeah totally that totally resonates with me and something that I hear inside nested inside of that is this like feeling of progression this as you say what is like what you're absolutely capable of and what you perform or what you achieve being so close to one another. Those are like moments that are really powerful. And as you say, flow and I've totally felt that I've for a long time um, since I stopped skiing as much and learned to highline I kind of realized in myself that what I was actually addicted to was not the adrenaline, but it was the progression. It was this growth. It was this learning. It was this new and novel experiences that I was having. And in paragliding, those are so surreal uh, just by the nature of flight and from a number of different reasons, but this feeling of, progression and doing things that are at the edge of your ability that totally i totally resonate with that i have had that experience in four different sports and other realms of my life in general so i really love that story of climbing back up when you're low what kinds of parallels do you see let's just let's just take two very far poles are I I don't know are you do you have a meditation practice there's some ways that you talk about meditation that it sounds like you might be a practitioner
1: yeah off and on so you know like I feel like uh it's usually not when I need it you know when I need it I just forget to do it and get all worked up and then I kind of remember and go back into it so I've I've experienced with it but lately I, I haven't been doing it there's been enough stuff out that I just haven't set the time aside for it
0: yeah you and me both you and me both man but um and I don't consider myself an experienced meditation practitioner at all. I don't know if you know Matt Cohn. He's a paraglide pilot and instructor who has lived at the ranch, and he actually founded the Cloud Base Foundation as well as Karma Flights, that does a lot of work in Nepal. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. And he's a really, he's a really, really experienced meditator. He goes to a Vipassana retreat every year and has been to like a dozen of them now. Um. And just some of the experiences that he writes about in meditation, I feel like there are like deep parallels to paragliding. And this is something you kind of alluded to earlier when I suggested that there might be certain ways to have more powerful or more meaningful experiences, but what are the parallels you see and this kind of goes back to what i was asking about how how your experience with earth energy has changed your day-to-day what kind of parallels do you see between these kinds of experiences on your paraglider or surfing or sailing to your daily life
1: i don't know if there's i don't know if there's parallels there's a i mean i like i like to write i really enjoy sitting down and ideas into something that that can be transmitted and so there's there's a little bit sometimes a lot of ecstasy in that in that writing and especially when you get it right and you're like oh yeah I I said what I had wanted to I'd said what I was feeling which is sometimes the most difficult thing is to translate feeling into in a rational construction like uh, words and I guess that that feeling of just being super connected internally and externally that what you're, what you're feeling, what you're experiencing is coming out. Um, Maybe that's the parallel between the paragliding where there's, or or the surfing where there's just, there's no faking it. You know, when you're surfing a wave, you're either surfing it, you're either on it or you're off it. You know, you don't really say unless you're talking to a beginner and you're encouraging them and you're full of shit. Like, Oh, that was, you were kind of surfing. You know, it's, it's, you're either doing it or you're not. The same thing with flying. Like, I mean, if I saw someone who is just kind of flying, I'd, I'd be super worried about it for them because it's such a dangerous fucking thing. And yeah. mean, some idiot got into a harness and wing and kind of figured out how to launch, and then now they don't know what they're doing. Like, that. it's just so rare that that's the only way I could I could see that playing out. And uh-huh. so that connection internally and externally is is probably the the closest parallel I see between the writing earth energy and, and the rest of my life.
0: And do you, have you experienced some kind of flow state writing? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'd say, yeah, you write, write some really cool pieces and it's like, uh, it's like I said, it's, I took what I was feeling, which is this very difficult to describe thing. And I accurately put it down in a way that other people can experience that same thing. And that is at that's at the heart for me of of really gripping, engaging writing.
0: Yeah. I love that idea. And I think that something that I've long, how would I say there's something that I've like tried to do for a long time with my podcast and my writing and my sports in general is to like encourage other people to find something that lights them up in the way that these sports have lit me up. And I think that, there's a deep desire in humanity to have these kinds of flow state experiences. And if you've, if anyone has read the book stealing fire by Stephen Kotler and Jamie wheel, it is a look at how flow state emerges, how you can train your mind to do it and how you can pretty much have a flow state in any, in any arena of your life. And I think that, I I guess I would love to hear from you if you and how you encourage other people to have the kinds of experiences that we're talking about, because I think that most times I will talk about paragliding until I'm blue in the face and try to help people understand how incredible of experience that really is. But I also might fall short in trying to encourage that pursuit in other arenas. So I'd love to hear from you how, I mean, do you think that there's like a responsibility of people who experience that kind of thing to pass on that? Do you think that flow state is important for people? Do you think that these kinds of experiences and tests as you've put it are Um, beneficial to society or individuals at large. Um, I'm kind of like chipping away at the same thing of like, what is this like experience that we have in the sky? Like, how does that make us as people? What are the parallels that other people experience it in other ways? And how does that benefit our lives and other people like um, in the, in the bigger picture?
1: I'll start with the, the responsibility piece. Um, I I wouldn't put on anyone the responsibility to to help anyone else um, experience that flow state. That's that's something that has to be driven internally. And the flip side of that is, I just I used to teach folks how to how to swim, how to do a lot of different things, and. In through that teaching, and most of it was kind of a physical piece, teaching how to move in a certain way or how to move through the water, how to feel the water, how to move through whatever it was, physical space. And there's this concept came to me kind of independently of the fact that it already existed of of pushing and pulling. And so the same thing applies in, in sales and business is that you can push, you can teach people and you can do a pretty good job of it. It just takes a lot of energy on your part because you're the one pushing the information out to them. And as soon as you stop pushing, then the information stops flowing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then there's the pull side where the student comes to you and they say, hey, you know, I want to know what you have. I, w- I want to be where you are. And with that, you can then handle tons and tons of students because all you're doing is, is releasing and, and allowing information to flow out of you. You're not, you're not driving it super hard. So I think the only time I would think there would, you could make a case for responsibility is if someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to learn what you know. But even then, I've, I've talked to people and asked them kind of that favor, and they weren't ready to do that. And so there has to be that match between the person who's ready and willing and capable of allowing that information to, to move out of them and to flow out of them, um, and the, the match between the student who's ready to receive that and take it in. And if that's not there, like, it, I don't know, that putting a responsibility on it is is a little bit um, too much. And I think that as I, you know, keep moving down the, the path of life, I just get a little bit quieter and a little bit more kind of looking at like, all right, internally, what can I do to make the situation around me and my friends and the people I know and the people I communicate with, how can I make that better? in a way that doesn't force anyone to become better. It just allows them to become. And if they want it like, Hey, it's, it's here. I've got the information. I'd, I'd love to help. But I also don't want people to feel like, Oh, you know, Nick's putting this out there. So I have to, to do what he's saying. Cause that's, that doesn't work.
0: Yeah, I totally hear that. And that's something I've really, I think I've struggled with in my life. I am, deeply enthusiastic and I have a huge desire for people to experience the kind of bliss and growth that I've experienced. And at times I think that I have crossed the line between being willing and enthusiastic to share my knowledge and being, what do you call that a know-it-all or like Unsolicited advice or, you know, those kinds of dynamics. And I think that's a dynamic that we see a lot in paragliding. And I think that that's something that you touched on in the podcast that I listened to of kind of best practice to pull, as you say, like between the push and the pull. Like when you're trying to pull information out of uh, someone who has more than you do what are the kind of things that you might go about doing or saying or thinking about as to best extract knowledge from that person. And so I was, I'm thinking maybe you can kind of tell me your thoughts on that. Like what is the best way to pull information out of you or out of a, a, another person that you're, trying to extract
1: oh, experience from? That's, that's a much easier question to answer. Um, that's pretty mm-hmm. important is just, hey, walking up to someone, what am I missing? What am I not seeing here? And here's what I am seeing. And usually I only see a couple things. Like I'm, I'm looking like, okay, hey, I saw those birds going up and I'm seeing the flag coming in. Anything else I'm missing? And the really experienced guys, they're probably seeing 20 things. And so they can point out like, hey, check out the lake and look at that flag down there and check out the smoke on the fields and feel how it's you know shaking the bushes over there. and then you know, then it's, they kind of know what you know, and they know the limits of your knowledge, and then they can fill in either where they think it's appropriate or just the stuff that that you're not seeing. And so that part is just kind of asking, the first part is like, hey, what are you seeing? And then here's, you know, telling them, here's, here's what I'm seeing, what am I missing?
0: Mm. Yeah. And what about the other side? Is there, are there ways that you can, what what is what do you think is like best practice for you know in those instances where you think it's important to kind of like extend your knowledge to another person? Because in paragliding, this is a concept, this is a something that we face sometimes, like at your local paragliding hill, like if someone is irresponsibly under experienced or under knowledged. And, you know, that can kind of put our entire system at risk. So is there, at what point does that become, you know, I, I don't want to say responsibility, but like at what point does like pushing some knowledge on a person become important and how do you do that?
1: Yeah, it's a good one. I, I mean, there's two parts. So if someone comes up to me and says, hey, Nick, you're a Blossom all the time, like, what do you see? the first thing I always ask is just reflecting that right back at them. Like, what do you see? Tell me what you're, what you're seeing so that I know where Mm -hmm. they're starting and I know whether or not I can help them and fill in some gaps. Um, So that, that part is easy. I mean, the second part is we had a a total jackass come to blossom. um, I don't know within the last year, no helmet, no reserve showed up, you know, read the site description, kind of figured out how to get there and then flew around and he was a, pretty decent pilot like he wasn't terrible but um man no no reserve no helmet just seems pretty dumb to me and it seemed that way to the rest of the folks on the hill and so we all kind of individually went up to him like hey man how's it going what's going on with this no helmet reserve and we're like why are you why are you doing that and he's like ah his he was polite about it um he didn't tell anyone to fuck off he's just like ah, i don't do that stuff that's not how i not how i roll and i think part of it was a macho thing which like uh, for me it's that's silly. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know, none of us had a great way to to tell him like, hey, dude, you can't fly here like that. Because there's there's no way to stop him outside of, I think, you know, in that case, there's no way to stop him outside of physical assault. And it's like, I I just don't want to choke out a dude today. I don't want to get in that rumble. And I don't want to roll with this dude. And then all of the implications come out of that. If If this dude, you know, has a crash, then it's Pretty obvious that we can say like, hey, all of us went up and did the the best we could, but at the end of the day, the person stepping off has that responsibility, and and some of them treat it, you know, far more cavalierly than others. And maybe if that site was a different site, if it was a site that we were kind of officially responsible for, which Blossom's got a ton of legal implications around it, um, but if it was, say, Palomar, where we have this constructed understanding with the local landowner, you know, it it does make more sense to me to say like, hey, I'm I'm going to yeah, I'm going to sit you down physically and make sure you don't fly because um, I feel like I have more of the, the right and the responsibility to our local local uh, tribe there. But I don't know, I, I think with those things, there's no easy answer. I don't think you can look at that and say like, oh, you clearly should have clocked that dude or you clearly did the right thing by by not doing anything because I think none of us that day felt like we had done enough, but also none of us knew what else to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's a tough thing too, especially with a sport like paragliding that is, I would say, hinged so squarely on freedom, like our own personal responsibility, that it's tough to intervene or even like, it's tough to even insinuate that another person needs something outside of their own decision making to participate
1: yeah, I think that, that's, that's a little bit easier if they're open to it. And so, you know, I always kind of start off with a question like, hey, what do you, you know, if I haven't seen you before, hey, I haven't seen, I've got this, God, God it's embarrassing to admit it, but just a terrible ability right now to, to put faces and names together. So there's plenty of people who are like, man, you've introduced yourself to me three times. You should know my name by now. But it's still, if I see someone I don't recognize, like, hey, what's going on? it your first time here. You know what are you seeing? Have you gotten a site brief? What do they tell you? And just being a little bit over inquisitive about what they know and what they understand, and I mm-hmm. think you know that that's probably the the best way to do it. And then everyone kind of knows through that conversation because everyone on the hill is listening. You know they're all like, uh, "There's not many people that want to go up and talk to the stranger, but everyone wants to know what they're doing and yeah, you know yeah. why they whatever are flying a D wing have the helmet reserve. Yep, what's going on? So
0: yeah and yes uh, yesterday I recorded a podcast that talked a lot about the information ecology that we have you know right now in the midst of the coronavirus and a huge shutdown of a number of systems we are in a really interesting time, and I took the time to talk about how our information ecology and how broken it is and has been for so long is playing such a huge part in that where people don't really know where to get their information the people who get their information from mass media are basically pointed at and laughed at by those of us who are who kind of have a long-standing disdain for that type of um, media and basically just the bigger conversation of how we get our information, how we disseminate it. And I think that what we're talking about is kind of at the heart of that, like who's willing to give information and receive it. And there's like myriad social implications there. Like how macho is this person and how willing is he to receive information or advice from the local community and how macho is Nick when Nick goes up to the guy and is like, Hey, like, why are you, you know, what do you know? Who are you? Where are you from? Why are you doing this? Those kind of things. And I think that that's a a pretty like interpersonal example of the information ecology, but I think that that's how, that's such a huge part of the ecology is just interpersonal node to node of how the uh, you know the information moves around our system and i think the paragliding is a pretty i don't think it's totally unique in those dynamics i think that rock climbers and um highliners you know like critiquing other people's safety is a pretty gray and touchy subject in any of these sports and i think that hinges on the freedom that we all exercise in participating. But I think it's a pretty interesting thing to meditate on as to how we best communicate with each other. How do we approach and inform? How do we pull information out of each other? How do we push information towards each other? And of course, willingness and consent are, I think, foundational there. But I don't want to take up too much of your time today. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I think your uh, writing is super interesting. I think we have a lot in common in that. And I am going to be coming to San Diego here early May. I would love to get that infamous Nick Hawks Blossom site intro as we do some paragliding. Cool. Um, Let's
1: go fly. Yeah, let's go fly. It's it's pretty rad to see how quickly you've progressed. I've, I've certainly gone super slow and and not as fast as I would have liked. So it's always good to see someone else burning brighter.
0: <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Well, I have, uh, dirted a number of times that make me very skeptical and wholeheartedly receiving that compliment as a good indication of my <laughs> growth and not of just a dumb luck and pushing. But, um, yeah is there is there anywhere else in this conversation that you would like to go before we tie it off?
1: Yeah, there's one more thing on on information piece, so there's the pushing and the pulling, there's the getting and the giving. There's also the you know where you get it, and whether we're talking about coronavirus or paragliding or anything, is mm-hmm. assessing assessing that information and the source and also your ability to understand and so this we'll take the coronavirus thing as an example, like most of the people. Just if you look at the numbers, most of us aren't infectious disease doctors. Most of us aren't infectious disease experts, mm-hmm. and it doesn't stop pretty much any of us from speaking as if we know what we're talking about. And I think that's that's one of the things that uh, is, you know, amusing and at the same time a little disheartening. But it's just like that's the human experience: is that we're all willing to to talk about things that sometimes we have no no idea what we're talking about. And so this has been a cool experiment and, and understanding and like, hey, is this person on Facebook who I like as a friend and I have had good conversations with, like, is it the right thing to do to listen to their assessment and believe it? Or do I listen to their assessment and say like, okay, well, here's the the things that I'm pretty sure or that I know that we both don't know. And it's the same thing with paragliding on the hill is you, you come up and man, you, you talk to me and you're getting someone who's spent some time at Blossom, but I don't have a ton of time in the sky. I'm a, I don't know, 175-hour pilot, maybe 200 at this point, uh, but certainly not a really experienced pilot, just lots of flying at one place um, versus any one of, I don't know, 10 or 15 other pilots who fly that site, who fly way more than I do, who can give you a, a much better intro to the site. And so it's that constant like assessing the information that we're getting, not just the eagerness with which we want to get it or give it, but also saying like, hey, is this true? And "And how do I know that it's true? Um, and, and that piece kind of makes it, for me, much easier to navigate anything, whether it's this coronavirus thing where it's like, all right, there's not that many people who know what's going on. I don't think anyone knows exactly what's going on. And I know that human beings default to Um, fear and panic when they're faced with the unknown. So what I'm seeing is kind of in accordance with what I'd expect to see no matter what's actually happening. So it kind of makes it easier for me to handle it and say like, "Ah, I I personally don't think this thing is panic-worthy. And the same thing on the Hill is just kind of looking around like, all right, these five guys have all launched and they're making it look pretty easy. And I talked to another expert who I know has spent a ton of time in the air and at this site. And he's telling me that, you know, A, he's seen me fly a bunch before and that's going to be fine for me. Like, this is a fine time to get in the sky despite plenty of other people not doing it for whatever reason, you know, or, or the flip side, whatever it is. So just assessing the info and information and the source of the information is is a really critical part of understanding um, what, is, what is going on as accurately as you can.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think that I would just, with the thing that you're talking about of how, well you can kind of like interpret or understand the information that you have i would call that discernment and i think that up leveling our discernment is one of the foundational parts of maturity and intellectual growth because obviously in our information ecology we have so many sources and there is so much noise per signal there is exponentially more bullshit than there is truth. And so taking in a haystack worth of information and trying to sort it and find needles is, um, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult. And I think that everyone up-leveling their own ability to discern what is true and what is not true and what to ignore and what to pay attention to, the foundation the foundational question that we have to ask ourselves all the time of what is actually important is so uh powerful and i also you know there is it, just particularly this coronavirus thing i think that the some of the best information i have come across is actually not from epidemiologists. One of my best friends here in town, his uncle is actually the head of infectious disease at the CDC. So we've kind of got this like personal stream of information coming from what is typically regarded as, you know, kind of the authority in America of this particular thing. And I'm finding that although his opinion is quite founded i have found the best information yet has come from uh computer programmers who have experience dealing with virality just online like why things go viral which is a pretty interesting parallel just between the human transmission of a disease and the human transmission of information online and so I don't necessarily think that you have to be an epidemiologist to analyze the information and have a really, um, how would I say, not necessarily accurate, but a uh, well thought out perspective. And I think that all too often these days, people use the ad hominem argument that if you're not an epidemiologist, you don't know anything about the coronavirus. Um, And so, Yeah, it is. I am currently trying to up-level my own discernment, my own ability to distill the signal out of the noise, the baby from the bathwater. And I think that that's something that we all have to do on a daily basis, whether we're paragliding and we're feeling the puffs of wind on our faces and the birds in the sky, or if we're trying to decide whether or not we need to buy rice and beans and stay inside or not. Yeah. I don't know. I'll, I'll, Push back a little bit on that. So,
1: yeah. not saying that the expert is is not expert at the only place you can find good advice is from the experts. But with this coronavirus as the example, so there are these transmission rates, mortality rates, morbidity rates, and these folks were are looking at at this from uh, as comparison to to viral ideas on the internet. And I think the thing that for me, that I'm, I'm just super curious about, and I, I don't know, is how much of the available information do we have? So there's an absolute amount of information, right? If, if we were, whether you believe in them or not, if you, we were God, there would be a, a, a correct answer, right? There have mm-hmm. been X number of people who have been exposed to it, and X number, Y number of people who have been infected, and Z number of people who have died, and. B number, you know, like those numbers exist in some kind of, in, in absolute reality. Our understanding of those numbers is not, we, I just don't know how accurate that is. And I don't think it's very accurate at all. And so I, I think when we look at that, so even if you're the, the best number cruncher in the world or the best understander of how things spread, if you don't have the fundamental numbers to, to assess it, then it's just like kind of best guess stuff and that's all that it is is a, it's a guess and so i mean some of us are right I, I in fact no i'll take that back none of us are right and that is the big danger is that you know you we make an assumption that like okay because this person understands these things they're right and we forget to check the the foundational assumption is that they have accurate information that they're working off of
0: and it seems to oh me- i absolutely i i absolutely agree with with what you're saying of the limited information and especially, you know, if you look at Wuhan, China and the numbers that they say, you know, I have a hard time believing that they are being completely transparent in the amount of people who are infected or how far that has spread or how many people have died. And they also don't exactly know. There is just so many people that is uh, it's impossible to have that omniscience of what exactly the objective reality of this is in the world. But I also think that we are, as humans, Nick and Ari, we are both trying to balance our opinions and our behaviors, our choices between two poles. One, on one side, we're trying to balance like this potential of being... Locked up, uh, you know, in our houses unnecessarily. We are balancing the the potential of seeming fearful or acting foolish or being afraid when we shouldn't. And on the other side, there's the potential of getting sick, of dying, of spreading infectious disease to compromised communities and it is as any complex question it is the answer is not obvious and i agree with you that even the people who are confidently espousing some kind of best practice for this are not totally sure of what is happening but it just kind of goes back like we are trying to make this decision on the in, the limited information that we do have. And then the question is like, do we sit this one out inside of our houses or do we kind of do business as normal? And in yesterday and today's podcast that I recorded, I kind of talk about what is being talked about as a meta crisis that is not just a public health issue but it is a public health issue on top of a financial issue on top of an infrastructure issue on top of a supply chain issue where obviously if you know 70% of americans live paycheck to paycheck and they sit at home for 6 weeks like we've got a big we've got a pretty big issue there just from a financial standpoint. Um, And those kinds of dominoes can exacerbate the situation pretty fast, but, you know, sitting it out for six weeks might sound terrible, but also, you know, 1% of America's population dying or even... 1% 1% of America's population being sick at the same time can have pretty consequential effects. So I totally agree with you that there is limited information and we are trying to distill truth and best practice out of a massive haystack of noise. And there are limited needles in there to begin with, but I also don't necessarily think it is obvious as to what the best practice should really be 100 percent. hey
1: I, I will say i've been thinking about this uh recently is that this is this really radical the positive side of me thinks that this is this really radical opportunity for kind of creative destruction to happen and and generate a new way of looking at the world so 70 whatever the numbers are we'll go with 70 percent. i don't know i don't know what, what there wouldn't fucking surprise me 70 percent of americans live paycheck to paycheck So let's say they take off a week of work, right? A week is gonna screw most people, two weeks is gonna completely fuck them. Um, Never mind six or or eight. (laughs) Humans generally don't just take things sitting down, right? Despite me liking to make fun of people who fucking suck, most people don't suck, most people stand up and they'll figure out how to survive. And so what Mm -hmm. we're, I mean, potentially looking at here is this reinvention of our economy, is how do you survive? How do you provide for your family when the old way that probably sucked anyway for you doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. You know, when it's taken away from you to go in and, and work at a shitty job, working at a desk for someone else, doing some bullshit thing that you don't believe in, and you're forced to do something that that makes you, that allows you and your family to survive. I mean, we may be looking at, um, you know, a temporary downturn and challenging time, but also a long-term kind of self-realization for a lot of people like man i spent whatever it was 20 years doing this thing that was gone in three days like why why the fuck did i do that and what Mm -hmm. can i do to spend my next 20 years let's assume we have 80 years on the planet um or my next 40 years like what can i do to make sure that every one of those days is is rung out at the end of it and i've gotten everything that i can get and i think that this is a a pretty radical time and and it You know, there's potentially that opportunity there for lots and lots of America to um, have have that realization and become, you know, the nation that I think we hope we all are.
0: Oh, I absolutely agree. And I just love, I just love, love, love that point. That the idea that through this adversity, we can both, what you're saying is, both of the veil is extremely thin right now, if not completely lifted as to the fragility of the systems that we have been our, our own mental frameworks that we have understood this system for so long. The, the veil is incredibly thin, if not totally pulled away from a huge number of people's eyes, as well as now that the veil is gone and we see that this system is fragile at its very best. And as it comes to, Go further and further from its best, more and more fragile, what is going to replace it? And what does good design actually look like? What does like what is actual best practice if this whole thing blows up in our face and proves that no, in fact, the systems that we had in place weren't best practice because they blew up in X, y, and z ways what are we going to do to reiterate to transform to transition to a more sustainable a more resilient system i totally 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 agree and i think that that is the really that is the epicenter right now of the positivity the positivity that is behind this whole thing right i think that on one hand there is potential for huge human suffering in general like just people getting sick people dying people coughing and and suffocating and having pneumonia and this is all like shit that you really want to you don't wish on your worst enemies and you really like you you want people to be healthy and happy in general so we don't want that but we also are beginning to see that the systems that we have in place might not be sufficient to solve the problems at hand and meet our needs in the long term, and now is a great time for us to reassess, take a real good hard look at what we're doing. It's almost like, it's almost like crashing a paraglider. You're like, well, now is a pretty good, you know. I'm glad I walked away from that you know like if we are going to live through this whole coronavirus thing and the entire system is not going to cataclysmically devolve into utter chaos and civil unrest then what is the what are the downfalls what are the weaknesses what are the weak spots soft spots and how do we develop something that's more resilient more robust and serves more people better I think that you're totally right. I love that you bring that up the positive opportunity to learn here.
1: Always something good in every disaster.
0: Just got to look for it. The silver lining. Well, dude, thanks so much for your time. This has been super fun. I uh, would love to do this again in the future. Cool. Yeah. Thanks,
1: Eric. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the uh, the time and reaching out and super psyched to share uh, at least what I'm, what I'm thinking, what we're thinking together with the rest of the world. So
0: thanks, man. Awesome, Nick. Talk soon, buddy. Bye-bye. That was a great talk. Thank you so much, Nick, for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time and insight. Nick is a, as you just experienced, a very insightful person and very thoughtful person. Nick also has his own podcast. It's called Nick Hawk's Show, N-I-K-H-A-W-K-S. And that's available on all platforms. He's got 120-some episodes in his totally kicking ass over there so I recommend you hop on over there and check it out like I said this is airy in the air I am going to be doing my best to continue putting out content that is both intriguing informational and uplifting here as we are in these very strange times I know that we could all use it so if you want to support my mission please spread the show, subscribe, leave a review on iTunes. That's super helpful. And also donate at paypal.me slash in the air. I really appreciate it. You guys stay healthy, stay sane, and stay happy. All right. We'll see you on the next episode.